0: I think there's a whole world of metrics to be unlocked if we looked at things a little bit differently. Yeah, maybe curveballs. We got to be a little bit more careful with right. curveballs than we do with fastballs. So the key takeaway is that batters are gaining information about ball flight from the delivery itself.
1: Jimmy, welcome to uh, welcome to the Tread Podcast. Uh, good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. This is awesome. Awesome, man. Well. uh, I guess just real quick before we dive in, uh, we have a lot to cover uh, today for people who don't know your background. Can you give us like the the quick overview of, uh, how you got to this point and and what your background is?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, always loved baseball, Loved sports in general, loved math and science. You know, when I was a kid, I would read books like the science of pitching. I think Tom house wrote that book, you know, like, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, I I read it as a kid to teach me how to pitch. So I always loved sports, math, and science. Um, Undergraduate degree was mechanical and aerospace engineering. Didn't realize at the time how useful it would be for understanding ball flight later on. I thought I was gonna work on airplanes, honestly. I had an internship at GE Aviation on working on airplane engines. But then I decided um, I wanted to study biomechanics. So I got a PhD in biomechanics where I specifically studied the, uh, the baseball pitching motion. And so uh, finished that in about, uh, 2014, 2015. And at that time I was hired by the Dodgers to basically build out their pitching biomechanics capabilities. So it involved like installing markerless motion capture, figuring out how we were going to use it, figuring out how to make reports for the coaches. So yeah, basically worked with a bunch of awesome people to build out the Dodgers pitching biomechanics department from 2015 until the end of 2019. Then the end of 2019, I left the Dodgers to start Reboot Motion. And here at Reboot Motion, we created a uh, a buzzword term. Biomechanics as a service is what we Mm -hmm. do. So we're not really a motion capture company, though we have motion capture capabilities. What we really are trying to do is be the best in the business at analyzing motion, at giving biomechanical analyses to coaches. So coaches can use those analyses to make players better. And uh, that's where
1: we are today. Awesome. So you guys are now in kind of consulting, uh, the consulting mode for a number of pro organizations at this point, correct? So you're, you're basically helping with with uh, interpreting what a lot of these numbers really mean?
0: Yeah, it's it's actually more than consulting, it's consulting plus software as a service. Okay. So yeah. we do work with a, bu- with a bunch of pro teams, a couple of college teams, now a couple of academies. And the way we are, um, our offering works is the customer uploads their motion capture data to us. Our analysis software processes it, dumps out metrics that they can then do data science on top of. It also dumps out reports that the coaches can use. And then I do spend a lot of time with the coaches, the front office, helping them understand how to best use it and interpret it. But ultimately, the goal is to educate so that they don't need me. Sure. So they can use the reports and the metrics to do what they need to do. And then I can just continue to build cool software and cool analyses.
1: Sure. Awesome. So you, you were kind of in that first frontier of uh, motion capture in in pro Bowl, yeah. and the Dodgers are one of the very first teams to begin yeah. trying to build a true like motion capture lab, correct?
0: Well, so actually it wasn't a lab, it was in the stadium. So the very first thing that we did was install, um, uh, I think this is public knowledge, um, a markerless motion capture system in Dodger Stadium. So we installed Kinetracks. So I know a lot of people tend to first go to, let's build, we need a lab. But uh, when I got to the Dodgers and Kinetracks already existed, you know, my thing was, if we have the ability to analyze in-game data, like, let's prioritize doing that. The the problem in a lab environment is you don't know if that's what the person is doing in competition, especially when you use a marker-based system. Right. You know, when a person has to strip naked and then put all these, you know, dots all over their body you know, are they doing what they would do on a mound if they had clothes on and they didn't have these dots all over their body? Right, I'm not right. so sure. So at the Dodgers, our first thing was let's get an in game biomechanics.
1: Awesome. So just real quick, going over kind of the evolution now, now that you've like been on the yeah. inside, now, now back on the outside, but still having mm-hmm. some involvement with uh, with pro organizations, like how, how yeah. far do you think they've come? Then what would be some areas where they still you know, need to improve, or the kind of the next frontier uh, for player development? Is this, you know, like, what you're working on right now is, which is the interpretation of what these yeah. numbers actually mean, and how to apply it to pitchers? Um, where can they continue to get better? Where do you see the next 10 years going from a pro standpoint? Um,
0: yeah, I still think I mean, I think we're doing, uh, we being biomechanists, like at, in Major League Baseball, are now doing an awesome job of collecting lots and lots of data um i still think a lot more needs to be done to make it interpretable and at reboot motion that's what we really focus on is like how do we make it actionable that's like our big thing is like actionability because um i think there's a trap that a lot of people you know so the thing is a lot of biomechanists they they go into the pro sports world from a research uh background you know they have phds in biomechanics and then um they tend to really hyper-focus on the research aspect of it. They tend to hyper-focus on, we need to do all of the validations to make sure this thing is accurate to within a millimeter before we can give any recommendations. But the thing is, like, you can give, like, solid recommendations without knowing if your motion capture system is accurate within a millimeter.
1: <laughs> right, right. So
0: I think um, still, you know, a lot of people in the pro sports world tend to... Uh, focus a ton on making this like research grade biomechanics. And where I come out on it is like, let's actually really focus on making it actionable. You know, this, 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 this gets into like the debate between marker based motion capture and marker, less motion capture. You know, we want millibiner accuracy. Yeah. Maybe we need a marker based system, but if we want the most actionable data, then maybe we need a marker less system. So that's where I think we can continue to get better. Is focusing more on the action, actionability as opposed to the accuracy and like the
1: research right and that's that's something that you and i have talked about in private is you know trey we don't have a motion capture lab yet that's something we're moving towards yeah. likely in the next 12 to 18 months um but it's not like you can't get players better without having data yeah. on every single pitch right there are some yeah. some biomechanists out there i know you're not one of them who think that if you don't have data on a certain like regular constant data you cannot possibly yeah you know, have some any sort of action steps, you have no idea what you're doing, there's no way to actually get pitchers better. Mm-hmm. Um, so something we're working towards is just being able to have that as an additional layer on top of our current understanding, like you can see visually on video and just working with a player, if they're flying yeah. way open, and you can see if their elbows yeah. are right by their like you can see this stuff on video, it's not, it's not yeah. rocket science, would it be helpful to have that additional layer on top? So that you can get, you know, get these checkpoints when things are going well, and then be able to see these really subtle you know two three four degree differences mm-hmm. over the course of the season like yeah of course that would be that would be helpful and i yeah. almost see that as like another layer on top to give coaches an additional uh additional tool but there's kind of a theme where certain biomechanists are like you can't possibly get a player yeah. better without this and it's like what did yeah. what did coaches do 20 years ago what did coaches do 30 years well, ago like so
0: yeah no 100 percent, ben well um one of my favorite things, like when I really got into the weeds with the Dodgers, and I started like, really trying to understand the physics of the pitching motion. And sometimes I sort of see myself as like a translator between like what coaches say and teach and then like physics and biomechanics. And when I really like approach it from a naive perspective and really got into the weeds with it, I was like, wow, like, all of these things that coaches are saying, like, are right. (laughs) You know, like, it's, it makes sense. All we're doing. Well, not all we're doing. Right. You know, people say like the best analyses, like confirm what you already know for, you know, for, you know, 75% of the analysis confirms what you already know. But 25% of it like surprises you and helps right, you learn. Right. That and that's what I find where I find with biomechanics is most of it is just like intuitively what coaches are already thinking and doing. But then there is, you know, the 25% is like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's something I can use to make this
1: player better. For sure. I'm, I'm curious. Um, you do have a little, you know, a little bit of a pitching background yourself. Did you play in high school or just growing up or in college at all?
0: Not college. I wasn't good enough. But I, I did play uh, in, you know, a lot of Little League and high school. I, I played okay. through the, the end of high school.
1: Do you, do you fi- find that? being able to lean on that does help with interpreting some of the data like how how much do you think that's informed your ability to like weed out some of the you know false assumptions in in terms of what you're doing or or provide context like do you feel like if you didn't have that pitching even playing in high school if you didn't have that or you didn't know what throwing curveball felt like or throwing a fastball felt like or how much do you lean on that in terms of being able to filter through some of the data that you're actually getting
0: yeah, it 100% helps, which isn't to say that you need to have played to be able to like analyze and communicate, but it definitely definitely helped when I like knew what it felt like and I had been coached before to do some of these things. Um one of the most important things that I did uh at the Dodgers, you know, before really like here's an analysis, here's what the analysis shows, what I would, you know, I would just sit in the coach's lounge. And just like be a fly on the wall as they're all talking. And like it's what's so one of one of the coolest experiences to me is like in spring training or in instructional league, like the day is over for the players and the coaches just sit in the coach's lounge and they talk about pitching and hitting until 10 p.m. at night. Yeah, and you can yeah. just sit there and just absorb all of that information. So like me playing certainly helped, but also just sitting there and absorbing all of that awesome stuff that they were talking about, just helped a ton be able to then communicate is like, oh, here's what the analysis is showing, here's how it relates to what people talk about.
1: Do you think that the role of of a biomechanist should be uh, to be able to make actual uh, practical recommendations or do you think they should leave that up to the coach? Like, hey, here's the data, here's what it means, but then you let the coach actually decide from there what to do with the players. Like, how, how do you see the role of a biomechanist yeah, so- in terms of that?
0: Yeah. So this is uh, a very, very important thing for Reboot Motion is that we are specifically for the coach. You know, th- different players like internalize things in different ways. They're motivated in different ways. Different cues work for different players. Like every time I've ever tried to go direct to a player, it's gone poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like, you know, that's not my, I'm not a coach. You know, I've never, I've never been a pitching coach. Um, so i think it's really really important to just to give to be able to uh, effectively give the information to the coach but then let the coach be
1: the one to make the
0: call make the decision on how to make the player
1: better yeah i, I always talk about like knowing the knowing the boundaries of your competency and trying to stay yeah. with it right? like i know that i'm not a physical therapist i know that i'm not a sur- like surgeon so like certain yeah. things like you have to be yeah. able to defer out and but also know enough about it that you can know who to defer to and know you know Know, the, know enough about the context so you know enough about coaching that you can understand what yeah. question, what context to share it without yeah, yeah, making yeah. those direct coaching recommendations mm-hmm. yeah awesome um, Well cool I think we've given people a little bit of a you know a kind of taste of, of what you're all about um, I'm yeah. curious if we get a little more into the weeds now uh, for those that are, are interested I know I'm certainly interested in picking your brain um, One of the things that Reba motion is is kind of known for and, and makes them different is you really believe in using momentum. Uh, in yep. your calculations. Mm-hmm. So could you from just a high level perspective explain to like yep. the average layperson like why is using momentum calculations better or different than how traditional biome- bio biomechanics you know, calculates things?
0: Yeah. So traditional like quote unquote traditional biomechanics has stayed in the realm of like analyzing joint angles like joint angles at foot plant, joint angles at ball, at ball release. Um, the thing is from a physics perspective, like the angle isn't the thing that determines the velocity. And so there, you know, in traditional biomechanics, people do analyze joint velocities, but the problem also with just sticking in the realm of velocity is the mass of a body part, uh, the person plays a huge role right like uh people have probably heard you know of or maybe they haven't i don't know if people have done any physics you hear about conservation of momentum but the thing that truly determines how velocity is transferred from like one entity to another entity is uh the conservation of momentum that's that's like a primary part of like what determines how velocity is transferred from one body to the next so what is momentum momentum is in so many words, mass times velocity. So it's really getting the mass into the equation. You know, for example, I'll just try to give a practical example here. You know, sometimes like coaches have come to me, they use a system that measures velocity and they're like, you know, especially in hitting like this 12 year old is like rotating as fast as the big league average rotational right. velocity. Right. Why can't this 12 year old like, you know, hit the ball is, 400 yeah, feet? Exactly. <laughs> And I say, how much does that twelve-year-old weigh? And it's like sixty pounds. How much does a major leaguer weigh? Two hundred pounds. That's why you know rotational velocity is not uh, <laughs> is not created equal in in right. in, in the physics world.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, we we know when it comes to to pitching, and I'm sure certainly for hitters and, and power as well, body weight is one of the biggest predictors of velocity. Yeah. So that almost you know it's kind of giving us clues as to what you're talking about yeah. as to momentum being the real the real variable. Um, Take me through your thoughts then on like the kinematic sequence when people people yeah. get these kinematic sequence graphs where they look at pelvic rotational velocity and trunk rotational mm-hmm. velocity and you know shoulder internal rotation velocity um how how does reboot or how would you what would your graph do differently is it would it be the same looking graph but now it's just the equations are a little bit different it's factoring in momentum instead of just velocity um what what's your opinion on that
0: yeah we make the same graphs but it's literally momentum over time as opposed to velocity over time but another really important point about momentum as opposed to something like energy is momentum has a direction i can you know i can literally calculate in what direction is your torso generating momentum when you analyze energy you can't understand uh the direction that energy is being transferred because energy by definition in a physics standpoint doesn't have direction. So literally when we create a kinematic sequence graph, we are graphing how momentum is changing over time in the direction of the pitching hand. So we're very specifically dialing in the literal thing that is transferring the velocity through your body. Um, so that's how, what, how we do it. It's a little bit different than a traditional graph of kinematic sequence
1: in theory with that. You can basically say like, here is the, here's like that we talk about like the wave of energy flowing through your body. Like how, how seamlessly can you connect the pelvis through the trunk? you know, all the way up through the spine out into the arm, like how seamlessly can you transfer that wave of energy out through your body, your equation would allow you to actually calculate that wave of energy and see where would the break in that wave be at mm-hmm. exactly which point is that momentum maybe starting to be lost at a, at a higher rate, right? Is, is that roughly what you're able yeah. to do? Mm-hmm. And so is there a way to, I'm sure you've already have an answer for this, but a way to see like, you're never going to perfectly transfer that momentum through the body, there's yeah. always going to be mo- momentum lost mm-hmm you're trying to minimize that amount of momentum lost you're trying to mm-hmm. capture as much of it as you can I don't know the number what that yeah. would that be maybe 90 percent or 80 percent instead of like 50 percent um, can you or do you have data on a bunch of big league pitchers or hard throwers and you can compare an amateur thrower and see how they compare from momentum transfer and give coaches the tools to say like okay it's the hip rotation where he's losing it or it's the he's losing it at the arm or he's losing it at the, you know, just before ball release, can you get to that level of precision currently with uh, your formulas and your equations?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we try to do is analyze the efficiency of momentum flowing from the ground to the pitching hand, and then try to give people information about where the athlete might be more or less efficient.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely curious and learning more just myself in the future. Yeah. So. Um, awesome. Yeah. Let's uh Let's shift gears. Let's talk a little bit about uh, UCL injuries. Yeah, I know you had, had some research in the past, and yeah. uh, kind of one of your own interests is, is trying to figure out how do we minimize, mm-hmm. uh, you know, UCL wear and tear, minimize UCL uh, injuries, minimize Tommy John. Obviously, you know, a huge epidemic throughout the game. I've yeah. had a pri- UCL primary repair myself. I mean, we've we all know dozens if not hundreds of athletes who've we've had that, um, and it's almost yeah. like a r- rite of passage for a lot of a lot of pro Everything. pitchers. Yeah. Um, but i guess first for people who aren't uh biomechanics they're not therapists they maybe don't have uh, an anatomy Mm -hmm. background can we maybe discuss the mechanism by which uh ucl damage occurs in the first place so what, what exactly is going on in the throw that would predispose a pitcher to damaging their ucl
0: yeah so when during the baseball pitching motion the upper arm you know uh the humerus rotates insanely fast, you know, like some literature studies, like say 7,000 degrees per second, there's evidence that it actually might be upwards of 10,000 degrees per second. So the point is your arm is rotating super, super, super fast. And when your arm is rotating super, super fast, in particular, your upper arm is rotating super fast, the forearm has to come along for the ride. And the thing is, in order for the forearm to come along for the ride, the connective tissue has to be a part of pulling it along. So in the pitching delivery, that's essentially what happens is the connective tissue between the upper arm and the forearm, one of those pieces of connective tissue being the ulnar collateral ligament, the ligament on the inside of the elbow, the forearm gets pulled along. And if you're pitching over and over, over, over and over and over again, micro damage in that ligament can build up over time. And eventually, you know, if enough damage builds up that, that ligament can fail. I mean, it's, it's hard to say most people believe that it's uh, an accumulation of damage over time that causes this injury. But I think it's possible that there are acute events too that could possible, that could cause this injury as well. But essentially that's what happens is that little ligament fails at some point for a lot of pitchers because the arm is rotating so quickly.
1: Awesome. So um, would you be able to kind of cover the different factors that support the UCL then? So uh, this mm-hmm. obviously all this connective tissue is being stressed uh, as a yeah. result of, of the throw. Um, the UCL is only one of those factors that actually yeah. stabilizes that, that gapping effect yeah. on the medial elbow. So what are the other uh, variables that act to support the UCL?
0: Yeah, I, in, my, in my brain, I tend to just uh, break it up into like three different categories. So the first category is like ligament. So there's ligament. Ligament connects bone to bone, right? So the ulnar collateral ligament is the primary ligament on the inside of the elbow, the medial side of the elbow. That connects the forearm bone, uh, the ulna, to the humerus, the upper arm bone. So that's one thing. But then there's also, it's not just like the the forearm is not just connected to a hum the humerus at like a single point. There, the the forearm actually like sits in like a socket on the humerus. So there's actually aspects of that like that bony articulation, that osseous articulation, that just by its structure actually keeps the elbow stable. So the bones themselves actually play a role in allowing the forearm to stay attached to the humerus as the humerus is rotating really quickly. And then the thing that I spent a lot of time studying in my PhD is all of the muscles. So there's a bunch of muscles, wrist muscles, finger muscles that cross right over where the UCL crosses. So they can help the UCL, uh, you know, essentially like take the forearm along for the ride as the, as the upper arm is rotating really fast. So those three categories would be the UCL. So
1: ligaments, bones, and muscles. Awesome. And so, um, I know there's, there's research looking at like the, the loading at which the UCL would tear Mm it if if nothing else were there to contribute. So if we, if we didn't have the, the, those kind of osseous Mm -hmm. or capsular uh, support, we didn't have the muscle, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, supporting the UCL. Like what, what are about those loads where the UCO would, you know, pretty much fully rupture if we didn't have those things supporting it?
0: Yeah. And I can hear people like screaming about fascia. So sure. We can throw fascia in there. I, I tend to lump uh fascia in with muscle just, you know, the way I learned it in my PhD from like a computational modeling perspective, but we can, we can throw that in there as well. Cause I can just envision people screaming about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so what's, so what's interesting about the way people describe the failure mode of the UCL in literature is they dis- often describe it as a like torque value. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is like, uh, um, so do you want to get into the weeds on like, what is torque right now?
1: Yeah. So that, <laughs> or, that was my question is like you know, when you and myself, I'm guilty of this as well, like synonymously using torque and load and stress. Yeah. Um, what yeah. what word should we be using when we're trying to talk about like the amount of that, like the amount of strain, stress, load, torque that we're putting yeah. on the medial elbow? What like, what is technically the correct way to think about that?
0: Yeah, so the ligament itself literally fails because of strain, like it's gets stretched to a point or it gets damaged enough where it like pulls apart. Um, So for ligaments, there's a stress versus strain curve. So, uh, what stress literally is, is the amount of force that ligament is supporting, um, divided by its cross-sectional area. (laughs) We're going, we're going really deep in the weeds here, but, but that's, that's the thing that's really causing, uh, the ligament to fail is the amount of force that it has to support given the area that it has. So when it has to support too much force, given the area that it has, then it, then it tears. Um, people often describe the failure mode in terms of torque, but the problem with describing it in terms of a torque, so torque is force applied at a distance. And that distance is the distance from the varus valgus axis of the elbow so what people don't often talk about is like there could be minor differences in how people define the various valgus of the el the varus valgus axis of the elbow and if you define that axis differently then your torque numbers come out differently because right. the torque numbers are dependent on calculating the force and also knowing the moment arm of that force um so yeah so the literal thing that causes the ucl to fail is the stress and the strain on it
1: so can we if we kind of get into that a little bit deeper so yeah. um you know one of the things I, you know we can bring up is is thoughts on like the modus or pulse yeah it's not called sensor um which is is giving us a, a you know approximate torque those torques my understanding is it's a little bit different than what you might see in like a uh like a true biomechanical like laboratory setting so the exact yeah. the absolute numbers are a little bit different again potentially because yeah. they're calculating it uh those numbers slightly differently um but at the same time, like what are the limitations of a tool like that of using torque and saying like torque, higher torque equals higher, you know, stress on the UCL because we can't, we can't know without knowing the cross sectional area of the UCL, we can't actually calculate stress like you said, but what are the limitations of using torque alone from something like a pulse sensor?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty involved in calculating torque. So the first one, the first piece of uncertainty is what i already mentioned is it requires you defining the axis about which the forearm is rotating and that's just not a really straightforward thing to do so if you define the axis about which the force form is rotating a little bit differently than somebody else's study you're going to get different uh you're going to get different torque values um the other thing that's tricky is these sensors uh They're not, so the way you calculate torque is by measuring rotational acceleration. Um, But when you have a marker-based system, like you're literally measuring position. So in order to get from position to acceleration, you have to do math, you gotta take derivatives. And when you take derivatives, you introduce noise. And then you have to apply filtering to smooth out that noise. So like that that whole system of math that you have to do to get from position to acceleration, You have to make choices about, about how much you filter. And so, uh, the choices, you know, people try to standardize these choices, but still like the math, it just involves like uncertainty and smoothing out noise, which means it's really hard to compare like one torque value versus another, if you didn't do the exact same methodology. And even with a sensor, you know, so sensors generally measure like angular velocity. Um, but they're still not directly measuring like angular acceleration. So still you have to do some math to get from what the sensor is collecting to the actual torque value. And just again, that math introduces um, uncertainty in the calculation. So this is why, you know, you mentioned that like the actual torque value that the pulse sensor gives you is different than what you see in the literature, just because the math is different. The, uh, the, The actual thing being measured is different. So it's just really, really difficult to standardize these calculations across different systems. So it's really hard to compare one system, the, the torque value calculated by one system to the torque value calculated by another system, unless you're very sure that your methods are exactly the same.
1: And even if you did, let's say, have like the perfect torque value, what, is, what are the limitations yeah. of using that on, and assuming like a one-to-one correlation between higher torque and higher you know, rates of UCL injury?
0: Yeah. It goes back to the three components, uh, that we were talking about earlier that help, uh, the, the forearm, uh, stay connected to the humerus during the pitching motion is, you know, the, the ligament contribution is one contribution. The UCL is like one contribution, but we also have the contribution of the bones, the capsule. We also have the contribution of the muscles. So, you know, this torque value is a measure of the total torque experienced by the elbow. But just because we know the total torque experienced by the elbow, there's still a lot of uncertainty. We don't know how much of that torque is actually stress experienced by the UCL. In order to know that, we would need to know the structure of the person's bones. We would need to know the capacity of their muscles. We would need to know the activity level of their muscles, the strength of their tendons. So there's so much uncertainty in going from that total torque value uh, to the actual load experience, the stress experienced by the UCL, that it's just, you, you know, it's, it's, you can't really say that, you know, one player has a higher torque than another player. That person has higher stress on their ulnar collateral ligament. You just can't say that because there's too much uncertainty.
1: Right. Well, one thing we can effectively assume though, is that if we have uh, less fatigued, better functioning flexor pronator muscles, stronger flexor pronator muscles, at least in an isometric sense. Um, yep. That should theoretically help, it'll contribute more towards reducing some of that loading off the UCL. So some, yes. something we can control as coach, as, at least as coaches or strength and conditioning coaches, um, is strengthening the, the flexor pronator muscles, not pitching in a extremely fatigued state. Mm-hmm. But like a weak flexor pronator muscle, at least how I communicate it to my guys, like no different than a fatigued flexor pronator muscle. It's a flexor pronator that is inadequately prepared to actually stabilize the elbow at that specific instance in time. Yeah. So maybe on pitch 120 you know if your grip strength is normally like 170 maybe on pitch 120 it's like 110 you're no better than the guy yeah. with a grip strength of 110 who's fresh because it's just it's incapable of doing the job mm-hmm. so it's accurate to kind of think of it in from that sense like as as of flexor pronator fatigues the proportion of that you know of that load that's going to the UCL is is going to be higher that 100 yep. newton meters or whatever 60 newton meters whatever we're going to calculate it yeah the proportion of that going to the ucl will be greater the more fatigue that you're inducing or the weaker the flexor pronator muscles the less contribution from the flexor pronator
0: yep
1: awesome well this this kind of feeds us into uh the study or the the biomechanical model that, that you shared with me mm-hmm. um i believe this was like 10 years ago now but <laughs> yeah. i know uh you know we we can get a little bit into the weeds with that but can you kind of first describe um you know what your what your, purpose was in doing this biomechanical model the the title of the paper was uh, the effect of foreign posture on the elbow Varus torque generated by the flexor pronator muscles implications for the ucl so what what were you trying to uncover with this paper with this uh, biomechanical model
0: yeah so it's it's very very difficult to study these four muscles in a living, breathing person, because there's a lot of them in a small area. It's hard to like put instruments in there to measure what they're doing. A lot of people have done cadaver studies, trying to measure what these muscles are doing. Um, My uh, research lab, my PhD, uh, one of the reasons I joined the lab is because it's, the lab is very, was very focused on, is very focused on, I think, still focused on um, building a Com, uh, a computer biomechanical, a computer simulation, a biomechanical model of the of the human arm. So that way, we can perturb this model in ways we can't perturb a living, breathing person, we can mm-hmm. measure things in this model that we can't measure on a living, breathing person. So the idea here was if we have a model that accurately captures muscle paths, muscle origins, muscle attachments, can we more granularly understand if we're manipulating things about the forearm posture, how does that change what the muscles are doing? And that's just really hard to do. uh, In a live person, it's easier to do in a cadaver. But still, you can measure things in a much more granular way when you do a computer simulation.
1: So when you you basically use a computer, made a computer simulation, you you created this biomechanical model of the arm of the, you know, flexor pronator muscles of the UCL, and Mm -hmm. you, you pass it through this, this model, and you we're looking at the degree of supination or pronation of the form during a throw and calculating, okay, how much, uh, how able to resist, uh, that valgus torque, you know, were these different muscles at different orientations? So basically, like we know the flexor pronator muscles are extremely important to stabilize the UCL or stabilize yep. the medial it take load off the UCL. How does mm-hmm. that the amount of supination inf- impact their ability to function in that way? So what, what did you guys, find in that paper? What was the kind of takeaway?
0: Yeah, so the foundation of this work uh, was my PhD advisor, Dr. Wendy Murray's PhD, which was, she built the initial version of this upper extremity model. And then what I really tried to do was add information about this various valgus axis. And so so that's really where I came in, is I wanted to add this axis and see what would happen if we measured stuff about this axis. <clears throat> so yeah, what, uh, what we did was we did a simulation where we just increased the amount of supination in the model, and we increased the amount of pronation in the model, and we looked at how the muscle, the individual muscle capacities changed. So the thing is, for a muscle, uh, the, the ability for a muscle to generate force is dependent on how long it is. You know the uh, length tension relationship of a muscle. So that was the, that's the essence of what we were looking into, is as we rotated, as we pronated, soup and into the forearm, how did it change the length, uh, the length tension relationship of their muscles, and that in turn impacts the ability of these muscles to generate a torque to counter the damaging torque that you see in pitching. So that's what we explore. Yeah.
1: So to kind of to translate some of that stuff for for yeah. someone who doesn't have a, a background here. Uh, the real point for coaches is like how uh, if we compare like a curveball or a slider or something with more supination, yeah. where you're getting around the pitch, with something like a fastball where you're more neutral at ball release, right? More supination, more pronation. How does that yeah. impact the ability of your forearm muscles to protect the UCL? And what it's you're exactly. saying is that when you're when you're in more supination at ball release, you're putting your your pronator and your flexor pronator flexor muscles in a greater stretch. When yep. the muscle is at a greater stretch so you can think about uh for people listening like if you're going to do a bicep curl where is your bicep strongest it's strongest right around 90 degrees when it's in this neutral yeah. position like somewhere in the mid-range yeah. you can't lift as much weight when you're in fully extended or a fully flexed position mm-hmm. so it makes total sense what you're what you found which is that um, in greater degrees of supination these muscles are not able to contract as well or as yes. hard or, or stabilize as well the ucl and when mm-hmm. you're in more of a neutral position like a fastball they're able yep. to contract and stabilize the medial elbow better right yes yeah so essentially
0: me- essentially yeah i mean to boil it down the more su- the more supinated the forearm posture the less able the muscles were to generate a protective force
1: okay and it makes it makes sense when you're thinking about it like if if you're going to shake someone's hand and try to like turn inwards pronate you're going to try to pronate yeah. hard inwards you'd probably want to do that from somewhere in a neutral posture like you'd be able to produce the most most force there versus being in a completely supinated posture and trying to Mm -hmm. create a torque that way so Mm -hmm. it intuitively made sense when i read that paper and i looked at the graph um implications for that i mean we can we can get into like curveball research um, a little bit later on but what were your thoughts when you found that was this something where you're like we should be potentially more careful with throwing curveballs now that we know like the forearm muscles don't work as as well in a ton of supination, or like what were your thoughts when you kind of discovered that?
0: Yeah, and exactly that is just not necessarily that curveballs are more dangerous. I mean, this gets into the weeds a little bit, but typically what people find is the torque experienced by the elbow when throwing a curveball is lower than the torque experienced when you throw a fastball. So the demands on the muscles are actually lower. So like the demand on the muscle is lower, the capacity on the muscle is lower. So it's hard it's still hard to say if the um if the risk on the UCL is higher, but still it made me think about uh yeah, maybe curveballs. We gotta be a little bit more careful with right. curveballs than we do with fastballs.
1: So the, the overall torque the elbow is experiencing on a curveball is it's lower, but at the same time the muscle's ability to protect the elbow also lower on a fastball, it's yeah. higher torque, higher capacity. Yeah. So it kind of explains why it might be a little bit of a wash in terms of making a concrete recommendation about one being more dangerous than the other. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, What are your thoughts just before we get into some of the kind of curveball data and the practical side? What are your thoughts on splitters? Because there's, there's a little bit of a debate on splitters and, um, you know, does really spreading the fingers create more tension at the elbow? Is there an injury risk there? What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very similar story, you know, in a curveball, like supinating, uh, the forearm is the thing that changes the length of the forearm muscles, which changes their ability to protect the elbow in the same way. When you throw a splitter and you're splitting your fingers out wide, something that I don't know if a lot of people know or think about like your finger muscles, some of your finger muscles cross all the way down through your forearm, cross your elbow. So splitting those finger muscles out wide also theoretically impacts the length of those muscles, their ability to generate force at the elbow. So it is it is theoretically possible that um, the finger posture associated with the splitter does change the muscle's ability to protect the elbow.
1: It's something something that makes me think about is uh is like sprinters who constantly get hamstring strains and they're yeah. in a anterior pelvic tilt. Guys yeah. who are in the ton of anterior pelvic tilt, their hamstring is now always on this yeah. fully stretched position, and they're putting a ton of force through it. But it's always it's in this huge stretch position. Versus, you know, you get the pelvis a little bit more neutral, the hamstrings yep. are now in a more neutral position, you know, the, the incidence of hamstring strain is potentially a little bit lower. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things that I mean, we were talking about before we started recording, like, you know, is it just the fact that it's different and that if, if you build up to it too aggressively, um, that it's, it's a problem? Or is it the fact that like, if someone's been throwing splitters for a long time, maybe they've gradually stretched yeah. out their fingers, their body's adapted to that slightly uh, longer, you know, length tension relationship. Um, where splitters might not necessarily be a factor if you've been throwing them for a long time, or is it just a factor? Maybe like for me, I don't have super giant fingers. So like, I have to really, really crank a ball in there. I've played around with it. Like it doesn't feel comfortable, but someone with, you know, a Ronald Chapman splitter, like he doesn't even have to like get a huge stretch. He just, his fingers are just so big. He can just
0: force the ball. And
1: like, you know, like that's probably, it's probably a different scenario based on somebody whose like fingers have to stretch significantly further versus someone who already has... Bigger fingers that can just engulf the ball without even having to, yeah, crank it in there. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Awesome. Um, so I want to kind of move on and, and talk about some maybe practical implications for throwing breaking balls, throwing curveballs. Mm-hmm. Really hot topic where you know parents yeah. want to know like, hey, what age should I start yeah. throwing curveballs for my kid? Uh, you know, is is this dangerous? There's a lot of conflicting information, so we've kind of covered the a little bit of like what's out there in terms of the research. But could you kind of uh, I don't want to ask you to like summarize all the available research on curveballs, but like, is it a mixed bag? Does it all point towards curveballs being safer, more dangerous? Like, what are your general takeaways from overall what's been found in the research?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of conflicting evidence. And I think because there's just so many factors involved. um, You know, like we talked about a few minutes ago, you know, when you measure this total torque on the elbow with a curveball versus a fastball, you know, typically you see that that torque is lower on a curveball, you know, because you're throwing generally just because you're throwing the curveball slower. <laughs> so that involves like fewer or, or lesser velocity, lesser acceleration, which leads to lesser torque on the elbow. But like we talked about, it's possible that the forearm muscles are less able to protect the elbow when you're supinating in a way to throw a curveball. So maybe, you know, there's, there's a change there and it's hard to say like whether one is more dangerous than the other. I think the, uh, and then also when the, the survey studies, sometimes it comes out that curveballs, you know, cause more p- pitchers to be more in pain. Sometimes it turns out there's no difference. So essentially it's a mixed bag. And I think the reason is, is just because it's so dependent on the athlete's specific situation, the health of, or not necessarily the health. Well, yeah, the health of the athlete's forearm muscles, the, uh, the, the uh, maturity of the athlete. So I think there's just a lot of different factors there where it's hard to give like one rec- uh, one recommendation fits all.
1: Yeah, the, 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 I agree with that. And the, the way that I kind of like to think about it is it's it's way more of a spectrum, like a risk yeah. spectrum where there's various risk factors that can be, you know, on or off versus yeah. like the binary, like curveballs are good, curveballs are bad. Or like on the one extreme, maybe you have a kid who's like 10 years old who's, yeah. throwing like three three outings a weekend like at his tournament like throwing 50 percent of those pitches are are breaking balls and he's like really twisting the doorknob and he's got zero he can't even do a push-up and he has no strength <laughs> base at all and like just or you can you can check all these risk factors and it's like yeah that's probably a bad idea or you could be like this could be a 12 year old kid who's you know he's got he can do some push-ups like he's got a decent l- little bit of strength base he's yeah uh, we'll talk about like ramping up the workload he's he's been yeah. intelligently ramped up And he's, you know, spinning a few breaking balls and catch play a couple days a week, like just to start learning a little bit of the feel of that pitch. And he's not using them very often in the games. He's not relying on that pitch and he's not being abused. Those are two very different scenarios. And it's, it's much more of a continuum than a curveballs are good. Curveballs are bad. You can't even touch a curveball till you're, you know, till you're shaving. Like you hear that sometimes. Yeah. So that's, we're on the same page from there. There's just so many, so many variables that you have to evaluate. And it's not just all or nothing. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, and it sounds like you might want to, this is what you might want to transition to. To me, the more important thing is, is managing like ramp up, like changes in just how you're in the demands that you're putting on your body, right? Like if, if you are a kid, a pitcher who's throwing a hundred percent fastballs and you're throwing, you know, 75 pitches every outing, a hundred percent fastballs, then one day you switch to 50% curveballs, All of a sudden right. like demands on your muscle on your forearm muscles is changing a ton and they haven't had a chance to adapt to that change i mean it's the same way i mean the you know like if you are jogging you know three miles a day and then all of a sudden you do like a monster sprint workout right right, right, right. you're gonna like pull your hamstring because you haven't trained your muscles to do a sprint workout so to me it's much more of a uh, we need to manage like these transitions and these differences in the demands we're putting on our body. Right. You wouldn't like go from zero to running 10 miles. You wouldn't go from zero to like benching 300 pounds. You know, you always like ramp up a change and a demand on your body so that your body can adapt to support it. And that to me is the really important thing is if you want to introduce a new pitch type, you have to gradually ramp your body up into, be able, into being able to support throwing that pitch type.
1: For sure and and just to kind of add on to that one of the things we we've noticed and observed and even in my own throwing like when you are on ramping an athlete and you start to incorporate sliders or or curveballs a lot of times they're going to get a ton more pronator soreness in those in that first week or two so we can talk maybe a little bit about the mechanism there but it's you you are in more supination so you're going to have different activations of the different four muscles it's not just a static thing like your your model pretty much explained this like your pronator is on more stretch because why? You're in more of a supinated position. These muscles are being stretched, yeah. so it, it makes more sense. It makes sense that you would have increased uh, activity in some of these muscles, increased soreness. And so, you know, if you're always, yeah, like you said, if you're sprinting, like if you're always sprinting on flat ground, and now the next day you're going to sprint a little bit downhill, and the next day you're going to sprint uphill, like you're going to be sore in different areas. I think yeah. pitchers intuitively like they're hearing this, like they they understand this. Like if they start incorporating or playing with a different arm slot. Or a new pitch, mm-hmm. or long tossing, or doing pull downs—like changing anything about the positions, the joint angles—like it's going to change how our body actually yeah. distributes that stress through the system, even with very yeah. subtle changes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something we, I think, um, any of us who like exercise, like we intuitively know, I do a different workout regimen, I'm gonna be super sore. I do yeah. something different. I took I took a break for a couple months, then I try to do it the first time, I'm gonna be super sore, yeah. you know? Or
1: it, even something yeah. as simple as like, you, you squat every week, but like, I'm gonna go a little narrower with my stance this week, or I'm gonna go a little yeah. wider and sit back a little more. It's like one makes your glutes sore, the other makes your you know <laughs> yeah, quads exactly. completely blown up. Yeah. And it, it's something as simple as like, 10 degrees out with your toes and a little bit narrower yeah. stance. Like, completely changes how that's that load is actually being transmitted through your body and how the muscles are contributing to that stress. People don't, people don't think about it very much, but the
0: body is very good at adapting very specifically. (laughs) So if you're always doing the same thing over and over again, your body's going to adapt very specifically to support that thing and subtle changes can like, you know, your body, right? Like if anybody has ever, uh, you know, like I broke my leg once and then I, I didn't put weight on that leg for a couple months. And then when I took the cast off, my leg was a toothpick, (laughs) you know, there's a total difference in the ability of my right leg and my left leg to support, to support force, you know, so your body is like really awesome at it. You know, it learned that my left leg didn't need to do anything. (laughs) So it turned it into a toothpick, right? Your body is just really good at do at adapting in that way.
1: So what are your thoughts then on, uh, kind of the specifics of how you throw a curveball? So, like, let's say, let's say you're gonna you're intelligently on ramping. You you're gonna throw you know 10% curveballs at like 12 yeah. years old or 14 years old or in, even in high school. And you have a, you have a, a smart plan. Like, do you think there's a difference in terms of the actual, like, you hear like don't twist the doorknob. Like, don't yeah. actively try to snap your wrist, but just kind of keep the wrist in some supination and just you know come through the ball in a, in a less aggressive twisting motion. Um, yeah. Do you think there's any any validity to that? Like, what would be uh, the mechanism for why like violently supinating right into ball release might be a little bit more, uh, potentially injurious than just holding a little bit of supination straight through ball release.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, anytime, mm, yeah. Like violently supinating, aggressively supinating, like into ball release is just going to turn on your muscles more, which means they fatigue more. There's more demands on them. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it, it's just, um, it's, it, it activates your muscles in a much different way than if you're, if you're keeping your, your forearm muscles relatively quiet, you're just like subtly changing your posture. It's just, again, it's just a very different demand on your muscles. And you just got to be careful if, when you change the demand on your muscles that you are appropriately prepared for that.
1: Right. Thoughts on, uh, like spike sliders or, or knuckle curve balls. Um, like one of the, if we're talking about how supination potentially, you know, limits the ability of your your, you know, medial forearm muscles to actually stabilize it. Um, one of the ways that we found to teach guys curveballs who struggle mm-hmm. with supination, like, for example, myself, like, I, I'm limited in supination, I've broken this wrist twice, yeah. I've, I have had elbow surgery, like, um, with a with a spike, you seem to be able to, you don't have to get around that pitch nearly as much, no. they'll create pretty nasty movement. I'm thinking of, you know, Lance mm-hmm. McCullers, Kyle, right, guys who yeah. who have that spike um they're getting more of that movement they can literally just create create the grip and they're thinking fastball they're just ripping through the yeah. ball but because of that that spike because of that offset grip yeah. they're still able to get that nasty spin it's just maybe more gyro spin and a little bit less true like top spin or side spin um in theory their fore muscles would be able to stabilize a little bit better on that pitch because they're not in so much supination correct yeah yeah i think so Okay. I, I just, know I've, I found that as a very easy pitch to teach. Uh, yeah. 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 Because it's not like a completely new feel. It's like, Hey, just grip it like this and throw it exactly like a fastball. So maybe, yeah, that's yeah, right yeah. Yeah. And you want to also with-
0: helps with deception, right? If you, if you're not like aggressively changing your forearm foreign posture to throw a curveball that looks more like a fastball, maybe it's also useful. That's maybe it's also more deceptive.
1: Exactly. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, these like pitch, pitch smart, uh, Guidelines or risk factors, yeah. uh, basically like the official, like MLB, like published uh, yeah. recommendations. So I, I just want to get your take on on these. Um, number one, overuse and fatigue. So they've mm-hmm. if, if noticed uh, pitchers who undergo elbow or shoulder surgery are thirty-six times more likely to have routinely pitched with arm fatigue. Um, so this factors in things like pitching more months out of the year, uh, higher pitch counts, uh, acute spikes in workload, which you mentioned. Uh, pitching on consecutive uh days so do you, do you agree with all those things as kind of being being things we want to avoid from a health standpoint yeah
0: yeah i think the the uh well, yeah, just one of the keys is just being mindful of when you're overexerting, like when you are fatigued when you're pitching like you know more often than you're used to um yeah that's that to me is the key is just being careful of like pitching through fatigue and over exert and over exertion
1: for sure and just to add on to that from like from my coach's perspective uh same thing we see with like lifting so if like upper body lifting or even like lower body lifting but really grip intensive stuff if that's not done with a plan in season that can almost be the same same thing like if you're doing High rep deadlifts like the day of a start or the day before a start, <laughs> and you're just frying your forearms. Or, I've yeah. actually seen this isn't a lifting example, but um, I had an athlete like five years ago and, and he was feeling a little bit tight in his forearm. And uh, this was a remote athlete, and he went to his you know team trainer and had her grass in the crap out of his forearm like right before his start. And then he actually tore oh, his UCL man. in that start. Um, it doesn't ha- just have to be throwing that can induce fatigue, is my point, yeah, or shut down the muscles' ability to function yeah. if you absolutely beat up your forearm with a bunch of grass into where it's like bruised and just like totally shut down those muscles also aren't doing their job or if you yeah. do a bunch of farmers walk competition like I'll, I'll have i'll see strength coaches where maybe they don't have the pitching background so they're like we got to get jacked in season and they have yeah. the pitch doing like these farmers walk competitions and everyone's yeah. forms are sore the next day and like two guys get hurt so just yeah. thinking of it from like a total a holistic perspective it's not just throwing that can induce fatigue in those muscles it can be any number of fact bad sleep bad recovery yeah,
0: yeah. in in terms of these guidelines i am i'm less i would be less concerned about like total volume in a year per se uh compared to just appropriately ramping up and like ramping down and period i periodizing like strength versus activity, you know, it's just like any sort of like exercise regimen is, um, yeah, manage the on-ramp, manage the off-ramp, give yourself rest when you need rest, allow your body time to adapt. So I'm, I'm always less worried about total volume and much more worried about ramping up and ramping down and adequately mixing in rest
1: when rest is needed. Interesting. Do do you have any thoughts about like year round throwing then given Given that, pitch, a pitcher does factor that in. So they they ramp properly. They maybe do yeah. have some periods in the off season, um, like certain pitchers, that, even pitchers that have a, are a track record of staying healthy, yeah. like Max Scherzer comes to mind. They really prefer not to completely shut down, but to take maybe a few months away from yeah. competitive pitching. But they're still tossing ball. They're still playing catch a couple days yeah. a week, keeping the arm moving. Um, I know this. You know, starts to get outside of like your direct research realm of expertise but like just (laughs) general thoughts on like how those two things kind of compare like do you think that's more of a preference based thing um or some hard rules as far as like pitchers need to take like x amount of time off every single year
0: yeah i'm always hesitant to give hard rules um i i do think it's important for a pitcher to give themselves some time uh in a year uh, or in a given period of time when they're not stressing themselves at like max capacity, you know, it's definitely like you keep throwing, right. If you're throwing like below, like sub-maximal intensity, you know, you're probably not stressing the UCL at, at the very least. You're not stressing it in the same way you do in competition, or right. maybe not even stressing it at all. So I think like, you know, you don't necessarily need to take time, uh, totally off from pitching but i think periods where you're not throwing max effort all the time is really good for your body to rest recover heal and and grow too
1: so yeah so i, I guess my my thought would be like when it comes to uh different moves in the weight room that we'd be doing like if yeah. if you're squatting like do you just t- are you going to take like three months off from squatting or are you just going to have like uh some sort of deload from squatting at various points throughout the year you're you're probably not going to just like stop lifting altogether for three months yeah some point in the year. So I never fully understood the need to just take like months and months and months off maybe when they're like 12 years old 13 years like when they haven't even specialized in terms of baseball. Sure. But once you're in the college level, the professional level, um, what I'll often see is guys get so rusty, they get so far away from pitching that like, if your goal is to just maintain, you know, just barely maintain and if you want to take off like three and a half months, and then like on rep in January and just barely get ready in time for spring training or in time for the college season, like that's that is one approach. Um, it just doesn't give a ton of time to actually make any sort of sustained progress in the off season.
0: Yeah.
1: But then the flip side of that uh, the flip side of that as well is that uh, your muscle, your muscular system will recover a little bit faster. Like, especially in season, than your than your ligaments and your connective tissues. Yeah. So if you're on like a five day rotation, and like, you recover, you feel like you're not sore, and you're like, just recovering time for that next start. Maybe you're muscles are recovered, but maybe your ligament, your connective tissue aren't yeah. your nervous system aren't 100% recovered in time. So like, that would be like the counter argument where like, at the end of the season, you're not hurt, but maybe there should be a little bit of time at least away from max effort throwing to incorporate some more of like that ligamentous connective tissue, uh, even like just nervous nervous system healing to, to allow it to catch up a little bit more
0: yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah it's uh the ability of like a body part to heal is more or less i mean there's a lot of factors but it's just the amount of blood flow you know muscles have a lot of blood flow they can heal pretty fast but ligaments bones don't have a lot of blood flow it takes them longer to heal so even though your muscles may be recovered yeah your your ligaments might be might be not so recovered you might need a little bit more time for them to recover
1: awesome well i can just go through the the last couple um pitch smart recommendations here uh, just just to summarize them for people uh the next one they you know they mentioned is showcases um and this this goes straight yeah. back to what you've talked about um and they mentioned here like it specifically has to do with doing showcases at a point in the off season when you're not on ramped for that yeah so if you're not on ramped and all of a sudden you go to a showcase and you try to impress a, a college coach or you try to impress a scout like that's a recipe for disaster so showcases are a risk factor um they mentioned breaking ball usage but acknowledge there's a huge ton of conflicting evidence yeah. uh, in there we i think we've covered that um, they also recommended learning good fastball mechanics before beginning to throw a breaking ball that goes back to like not just like twisting the doorknob and just throwing your arm into a ton of supination which you know an eight nine ten year old who their arm slot is like wildly varying pitch to pitch anyway like maybe that's a guy where we start to incorporate breaking balls once they have actually developed some feel for how to yeah. you know decent decent mechanical guardrails as as we like to say i think that's probably a decent place to start like eight nine ten years old probably too too young just from that standpoint just from that perspective
0: yeah yeah i think um i think he would be okay with me sharing this i actually think he may have talked about it on a podcast this is one of the things that uh i remember i had a conversation or with walker bueller about in in spring training, like, I mean, I don't know if it was me and him one-on-one, but I remember him talking about, uh, before he would, you know, Walker can throw a ton of different pitch types. He has really awesome control of his body. But one of the things that he did specifically talk about is he wanted to master the ability to his fastball mechanics, repeat his fastball mechanics, manipulate his fastball mechanics, really understand his body throwing a fastball before he would start to mess around with all of his other pitch types so he that's something he specifically talked about i think maybe it was a podcast with ross stripling where he, where he talked about this but um yeah it's something that that has come up
1: yeah and i i can relate to that 100 percent uh i always felt like learning these different off-speed pitches was like the final step until you when, until you have high level mechanics until you can efficiently transfer mo- momentum through your body until you can you know uh you have a I don't know if you want to call it high velocity delivery, but a, high, a highly yeah. efficient delivery and a consistent delivery, um, then just learning the feel of how to manipulate your hand at ball release yeah. is is when you can start to learn and master these other pitches. Yeah. But until you have that foundation, it's almost like you're, you're trying to improve these other pitches on like this rocky foundation, you're yeah. like, on a yeah, yeah. ship at sea, like moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never, I never personally saw the, be- the benefit of spending too much time worrying about all these off-speed pitches until i figured out my fastball mechanics it was like well the second i change my fast my arm slot or fastball mechanics again i'm gonna have to relearn these pitches anyway like yeah yeah let's get this one thing down let's figure out how to throw you know whatever it is 90 95 miles an hour or at least have mechanics that could elicit that like five miles an hour (laughs) yeah if it's 65 miles an hour but it's at like 12 years old or whatever decent sequencing of their body decent timing decent sequencing decent conditioning of their arm on ramping. I guess I I could mention like for for kids, like, if you're going to consider throwing curveballs, like, can you do 10 push ups? It's like, (laughs) I I understand, like, 12 year old kids don't need to be in this crazy strength training regimens. But like, that doesn't mean they can't do a few sets of push ups a week, or do something to at least begin to strengthen their body a little bit, they're not going to get super jacked, they don't have the hormones to do that. But that doesn't mean that they can't get a little bit stronger. And their bodies can adapt to some extent. Like, can they do 10 push-ups? Can they do like 10 body weight inverted rows on like ring? Like some very, very, very basic things. Can they goblet squat like a 30-pound dumbbell? Some some just very basic stuff can go a long way towards just making sure we have the the general strength uh and mm-hmm. conditioning of their of their actual arm muscles. Um they mentioned pitcher catcher athletes, so again, kind of goes back to overuse and fatigue, but catchers are making a ton of throws every game pitchers, doing both just is tough. And I've seen that myself in uh, some of the athletes I've worked with. Higher velocity, right? People don't want to hear that higher velocity increases injury risk. But the unfortunate nature is it does. But at the same time, like that's a huge predictor of advancing through the game. So like, I don't know if you want to speak on that, but there's, I don't, I don't see a way to really avoid that correlation between higher velo and higher injury risk, except accounting for all the other risk factors as much as we can.
0: Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. I mean, it's just like a fact of physics, you know, like in order to get, make your velocity go up, the acceleration has to go up. And when the acceleration goes up, the torques go up. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a fact of physics, but it's not to say that you can't throw very fast efficiently. Like, you know, we didn't really talk about it very much, but I do think it's possible to have a pitching motion. I mean, it's obviously, I think it's, maybe it's obvious that it's possible to have a pitching motion where you throw really hard and you don't stress the UCL very much, so um, I do think that correlation is going to be unavoidable. But I also think with efficient pitching mechanics, you can you can sort of like reduce the impact of that correlation of that fact of physics. Actually, right. Say.
1: What What are your thoughts? Uh, I guess just to wrap up um, on pitchers who consistently <clears throat> throw below their peak capacity. So, like, let's say you have like let's say you have Justin Verlander, like prime Justin Verlander. Can throw 102, but he's cruising at like 95 versus a pitcher who's, you know, their peak is 95 and they're always cruising at 95. Um, is there anything that you would suggest like is riskier about the guy who's always throwing at max effort? Like intuitively as a pitcher, as, as a coach, like ideally you'd like the guy that could throw hard and also not try, right? Like ideally, <laughs> but from your perspective and, you know, from this looking at the, the way that bodies handle and transmit this this force. Um, would you would you hypothesize that the guy who's always at max effort is putting more stress through the or putting more load or injury risk through the UCL over time?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a reasonable assumption to make. Um, yeah, I mean, the person who's like, I mean, just by definition, the person who's always at max mat max effort is just going to be gassed, <laughs> you know, and then the, the muscles are going to be fatigued. And if there's always that max effort, then the muscles are fatigued, then theoretically injury risk goes up. So yeah, I think that's a very fair
1: assumption. So the scouts, the scouts actually did get it right. They want those, those low effort deliveries. Like, do you, do you think anything yeah, any- yeah. in there? Like, like when, when a scout sees like a, a guy who throws like the and it's just so smooth. And so like, yeah. from a, from a momentum transfer standpoint, like, is smoothness, the smoothness equal, like, do you see almost a one-to-one correlation between the guys that are smooth and the guys who just like crush your evaluation?
0: Uh, yeah. So that was what I was going to say is I don't know if the visible signs of effort are actually like reflective of like, you know, stress on the our collateral ligament. Um, you know, I think somebody who has like the quote unquote, like smoothest, smoothest mechanics still could be at you know stressing the ulnar collateral ligament um you know because to me is like the smoothness is related to the like efficiency all the way through the body like how efficient right. are you at getting from the legs to the torso to the arm um but even still you know the the stress on the ucl comes in at the very last step right. in the chain. um so you could be smooth all the way up. You know, you could be 100% efficient, even though that's not technically possible. But we'll just say you could be 100% efficient all the way up and you could look really, really smooth. But then the last instant, you know, the way the arm unwinds is okay. not so efficient. And that could be the thing that makes you at a higher risk for injury. Right. So I don't know if like visually it's easy to see who is at a, at a higher risk uh, right. for injury. I mean, but to your to the initial point is like just seeing somebody who is at uh, max effort all the time, right, they're probably just gonna be fatigued all the time. So maybe mm-hmm. that puts at them a higher risk. But it, it's not necessarily I wouldn't necessarily say like, uh, that means their UCL is by definition at a higher risk.
1: What would you say? Uh, this will actually be my final question, but what would you say to the people that try to pin an injury on a specific mechanical factor? So do you, like, is it, is it possible to say this guy got hurt because of X, <laughs> Y, or Z? Obviously like you're laughing and we, we kind of know the answer, but like, what, yeah. what's your response to that? When someone's like, this guy had an inverted W, that's why he got hurt. Or <laughs> this, this is why this guy got hurt. Like, is it, is it, is it as simple as that? Or what's your response to those types of comments?
0: Yeah. It's just like, there's so many things involved in, did this person hurt their elbow that it's, yeah, it's like, it's impossible to pin it on, to pin it on one thing. to especially like one specific mechanical thing, because like one specific mechanical thing, like maybe their body is really well adapted to the, their particular mechanics. And therefore like that mechanical thing is fine for, for one person. Um, so yeah, it's impossible. You know, like the things that are seem to be more important is again, managing fatigue on ramp, off ramp, um things like that um versus like pinning pinning an injury on one, one specific mechanical or one specific part of someone's mechanics.
1: I lied because yeah. I have one more question based on that, based <laughs> on that answer. Um, <laughs> with with systems nowadays, like with Kinetrax yeah. with Hawkeye like um yeah. when you're getting right re- these regular reports on yep. pitchers how much do you look at the fluctuations in that data to try to identify injuries ahead of time? So can you say like, okay, by the sixth or seventh inning, like his elbow flexion angle starts to change or his arm starts to drop or release starts to drop. Like how much have you looked at that real time data or even like just over the course of a season to potentially try to uh, predict injuries before they happen?
0: Yeah, well, and to add a little bit more to my previous answer, this isn't to say that the way someone moves can't impact their risk for injury like of course the way someone's moving is like impacting the load on the ucl but i think it's really hard to pin an injury on one specific thing this was my is my point um honestly like because injuries are so multi-factorial in our analyses like, injury risk injury prediction is not like a primary piece of what we analyze um you do monitor like changes relative to baseline and that's the biggest thing is just understand you know what we talk about change is the thing that can cause risk because your body's doing something it's not used to it can be it can be uh indic- indicative of fatigue it can be indicative of the pitcher doing something different but typically like thinking about injury risk it's much it's much more about like how is somebody changing compared to their baseline how would somebody pitching through fatigue um versus like having a red flag oh this this elbow angle went into the danger right. zone not right. necessarily that it's more like how is this person changing relative to the baseline is this pitching is this person pitching through fatigue
1: yeah and so your your job at this point is just empower coaches and organizations with that data so that their coaches can start to see over time see more of these patterns and we can start to draw some Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like the big, like one of the big things that we do is flag changes. And again, I don't know, you know, being now on the outside and not in the room with the coach and the pitcher, I don't know if this is a change that's desired. I don't know. I don't know why this change occurs, but is occurring, but it's just like flagging changes for the medical staff, the coach, the organization to look into to say, is this change something that's desired? Or is this change something that's not desired? And therefore it's, problematic. So that's kind of the, where, where we fall on this.
1: Yeah, it's cool to think about the way the direction that that's heading and just knowing it's, it's so complex, like, the more you learn, the more you realize, like, there's a ton going on here, it's really complex, but or at least it's, it's cool to see that you're empowering people uh, with that data to be able to make better decisions, or at least, you know, begin to learn more about how these all these uh, inner you know, yeah. connections uh, actually manifest themselves. So I think that's really cool what you guys are doing. Is there a way to first figure out which pitchers are the most deceptive? Like given like-
0: Yeah, exactly. Given right. how no, their stuff yeah.
1: in a vacuum plays, how much better are they performing than their stuff in a vacuum should be playing? Yeah, That pitcher's right. is the most deceptive. Now we can take all these different models that we've come up with and compare them to, does this actually spit out like Josh Hader and yeah, these guys
0: that- 100%. Yeah, that's the hardest for me right now, for us, that's the hardest thing is how do we actually measure deception, like in order to be able to predict deception, we, we need to be able to measure it.
1: <laughs> well, can, so. you, can you just like, can we just pretend that these pitches are happening are coming out of a pitching machine, they're coming out of a certain release side, a certain release height with a certain spin axis and a certain spin rate? And like, how would that pitch play? Is a total isolation of like, the limbs and the hair and yeah. the like, how, how would that pitch play? And then what's the differential between that number or that FIP or whatever? that Woba mm. for that pitch from that tunnel, from that everything yeah. and how it's actually playing in reality. And maybe that's that pitcher's deception score or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how you got, ca- I'm not like smart enough to calculate me, that. Yeah, me, but, it's not my thing. I mean, we, at the Dodgers, we had like somebody who made like pitch stuff grades, which were yes. supposed to be what independent, but, but yeah, but like, I think uh, the success of a pitch is very dependent on where it's kind of like, where it's released from, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to figure out there.
1: Yeah, like we have, there's we have stuff plus that we use weighted stuff plus, then there's execution plus, which factors in like the location. Like there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of variables. So it's like, I think we'll learn a lot more about that in the next 510 years as people develop better, better models. But I, I feel like that's we're on the cusp of something being able to quantify that.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know how you train I'm, that, but you can at least like scouting wise quantify the value of that.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm just not sure like hiding the ball behind your body, and maybe in, in in extreme examples, but I'm just not sure that that's like a real thing that happens. Um, I think a lot more of it is. Have you have you like seen any of these like occlusion? studies do you know what I, when i say an occlusion study you know
1: what i'm referring to I'll i'm assuming clear. you're not talking about blood flow restriction training which is also nah. called occlusion training no uh, just i'm nah. assuming like hiding the ball how will they hide the ball
0: yeah so people do it with video uh sometimes people do it live which is insane but it's essentially like you show the batter from the batter's perspective from the batter's vantage point the pit the video a video of a pitcher, and you make that video go dark at certain points. Like first you show the batter, the entire trajectory of the ball, then you make it go dark midway through the trajectory. Then you make it go dark at ball release. Uh, Then you make it. You can see
1: when the decision actually happens. Yeah. So the idea
0: is like, they do a bunch of repetitions of a person who's done a bunch of these studies, his name is Sean Muller. He came into the Dodgers once and gave a presentation, but the idea is at these different levels of occluding the flight of the ball can the batter, does the batter know stuff? Can the batter still know stuff? And turns out like batters can actually um, predict, like expert batters, quote unquote expert batters, can actually predict stuff about the ball flight, even like when you make the pitcher go dark midway through the delivery. So the key takeaway is that batters are gaining information about ball flight from the delivery itself.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Which, I would imagine uh, that has to do with like if they've seen that pitcher before because if they've seen like yeah. a sample size of 10 or 20 or 30 pitches, yeah. they can start to see the pattern. But if it's like their first time ever seeing a pitcher with yeah. zero context, like that would be a little different. That, that reminds me, I know I've seen some sort of research about like uh, expert tennis players, like they start reacting to the, yeah. the serve before the ball is actually yeah, exactly. even, yeah, the same see same. like the yeah. posture of the tennis player and they, they know to start going in that direction
0: the last thing I'll I'll mention here that is like a pet peeve of mine. And I'll, I'll see if I can, it's hard to describe because it's, you gotta be able to like visualize this stuff. But whenever people like try to measure deception, they'll like, they'll say like, at you know, at 50 feet away or 15 feet away from the plate, what is the difference? You know, how many inches apart is like, you know the fastball from the curve like late break right they try to right. like measure a late break but everybody always measures this stuff in a global xyz coordinate system so like you know the, the pitching rubber is like zero y the y axis goes from zero to home plate the z axis goes up and essentially like 1 inch at the mound is the same as one inch at the plate uh or like you know if a batter's like on the left you know on the left side of the plate like one inch over here is the same as one one inch in this world that people analyze like one inch is one inch but if we think about our eyes what do we actually see there's a like there's a reason there's a vanishing point right when i look at when i look at a road like that road is not you know, you don't, you don't actually see the road where like the two sides of the road are parallel all the way through to the end of eternity. There's a vanishing point because one inch is not one inch to my eye. Like one inch is smaller or different depending on how my eyes are seeing it, depending on where I'm looking at it. Like I look at a, at a road from one side, like the vanishing point is in one spot. I look at a road from another side, the vanishing point is another spot essentially like we perceive things in a way such that one inch is not one inch. Um, So one of the things I explored at the Dodgers was doing like a coordinate transformation into like a spherical coordinate system, which much more resembles the way we perceive things as humans. And I'm really fired up about this. I don't know if I'll ever have time to really dive in. Maybe somebody else will, but I think so much could be unlocked about ball flight, just by doing this coordinate transformation. Like for example, I did I did a really like straightforward proof of concept where I like I had a right-handed batter and I in from the perspective of the batter, I plotted what does it look like what does a curveball look like versus a fastball from a left-handed pitcher, what does a curveball versus a fastball look like from a right-handed pitcher and it's just so stark like how you can perceive the difference between a fastball and a curveball when you're looking at it from a certain vantage point, versus you're looking at it from a different vantage point. So I think there's a whole world of metrics could be unlocked if we looked at things a little bit differently.
1: L- literally and figuratively. No, I'm super <laughs> interesting. I've never I've never even considered it from that perspective. But it, it starts to take into account like, you know, optics and like, you know, like neural processing and, and like, this is all this visual, like the whole visual field and everything like that. So that, that makes a ton of sense. Like if we're trying to deceive the batter and be as disruptive to the batter's timing and ability to make yeah. swing decisions as possible, it would make sense that you want to be analyzing it through that specific lens.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, um, Jimmy, I want to say thank you again for for being on the podcast. Uh, this was awesome. I know you know we we nerded out a little bit, so yeah. Uh, hopefully, people you know were able to follow along. Um, where can they find you if they have further questions? Do uh, you have Twitter, Instagram? Yeah, uh, where can they get in touch
0: yeah yeah i mean we have a website a newly redesigned website that's pretty cool Rebootmotion.com. you can go there you can submit a contact request those go straight to our inbox so we see we see them all um on twitter at james h buffy it's really interesting like why my twitter handle is at james h buffy it's because like when i first started my phd i was like i should probably like use my real full name like uh-huh. to public papers. So like my PhD p- papers are under James H. Buffy. So I wanted my Twitter handle to reflect that, but then i my like, but in real life, people call me Jimmy. Well, I don't know. So anyway, my Twitter handle is James H. Buffy, but people generally call
1: me Jimmy. <laughs> I think Jimmy has a better ring to it anyway. So yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Uh, I know you've always been super responsive and, and helpful. Um, you know, for uh, honestly years now, whenever I've had questions. So, um, definitely, uh, tweet at him. He'll, you know, if you have any questions about this type of stuff, um, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate you being on and um, hopefully we'll do this again at some point.
0: Yeah, thanks, Ben. This was awesome. You're doing awesome work. I love following you. What's What's awesome, honestly, is I know that you don't have like a research like PhD background. But like, yeah, I think it's like, like we talked about it early, it's cool. Like, coaches, good coaches, like their intu- intuition is just spot on and i know you've done a lot of you know research yourself even though you're not a researcher but it's awesome to see like what you're doing and how much of it just like aligns with the science even though you're not necessarily a scientist
1: yeah we're just trying to find answers and we're getting there from different yeah. different angles um and the better i can understand you know the, kind of the research and the outside angle as well um a lot of it kind of like you said like 75 of these things validate what we already like know and observe yeah but occasionally you're, su- you're surprised and there's something counterintuitive and we can learn from that. So yeah, you know, I, I welcome it. I welcome the discussion. I want to learn as much as I can about the research side, you know, incorporate motion capture into what we're doing, um, but at the same time, like always have that grounded coaching yeah. expertise and background where, you know, if someone came to me and said that like curveballs don't place any more like activation on your pronator, I would instantly be skeptical of that because I have a hundred data points, you know, even <laughs> though they're anecdotal and even in my own body, like that yeah. directly contradict that. So, Having the coaching background and the the experience of you know training hundreds and thousands of pitchers you know between all the coaches at tread like we can sniff out the b s pretty quickly, um, but yeah. at the same time we like, you want to constantly be learning and you know understanding the mechanisms for for why yeah. these real world applications and observations are actually occurring so yeah. it's fascinating to talk to guys like you and appreciate the the perspective yeah.
0: yeah, thank you Ben. This was a lot of fun man we'll
1: we'll do it again yeah, absolutely, Jimmy.